This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads, and we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Before we get started today, we just wanted to let folks know that Universal Fan Con, where we were planning to be from April 27th to 29th, 2018, and to do a live show there, has been postponed until further notice. Although we don't have any other information right now about when the convention might be rescheduled, we do want to apologize to anybody who purchased a ticket or who plans to come out and see us. We'll post an update with any official information that we receive on our website at mistinhistory.com at the link that says Live Shows. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are picking up where we left off in the story of Wendell Scott, who was the first black driver to drive in NASCAR-sponsored races. Last time we talked about his early life and his time as a bootlegger and his first races that were part of the Dixie Circuit and then other non-NASCAR races in Virginia. Today, we will talk about how he finally got into his first NASCAR-sanctioned race and what happened in his racing career from there. This will probably make sense if you haven't heard our previous episode, but we will be referring back to some things from that episode, so it would be easier if you haven't heard that one to listen to it first. As we talked about last time, Wendell Scott had been turned away from NASCAR-sanctioned races in Winston-Salem and High Point, North Carolina in 1952. Sometime in 1953, the exact date is not documented, Wendell Scott made another attempt to enter a NASCAR-sanctioned race. And this time, it was in Richmond. Scott went to Maurice Poston, who was the chief steward for the track, and told him that he wanted to enter. Poston advised him that, as the first black driver the organization had ever had, quote, you're going to be knocked around. And Scott assured him that he could take it. This was the first time in history that a Black driver participated in a race that was sanctioned by NASCAR. And occasionally, you'll see it incorrectly cited that that designation really belongs to somebody else. And there was a Black race car driver named Joey Ray who started racing in 1947, but he didn't race in NASCAR. A completely different Joey Ray, which is, I mean, a little uh, weird of a coincidence to me. <laughs> well, especially considering the spelling is 
the same. Is the same and not what we would know as the standard, I'm using the air quotes, spelling of Joey as J-O-E-Y. Yeah. But J-O-I-E. Yeah, completely different Joey Ray, who was white, did race at Daytona once in 1952. That's the source of the confusion, but that was a completely different person who was not Black. I mean, I could see how that's a pretty easy mistake to make, because if you're looking at records, that's an odd spelling, an unusual spelling, and it's the same in both cases. I mean, if his name was was Bob Jones, that would... (laughs) Right. But going back to Wendell Scott... His entry into NASCAR progressed far differently than many other firsts by Black athletes in previously segregated sports. These often followed a pattern of an organized effort to integrate the sport, involving everything from legal pressures to methodical selection of which Black athlete would be allowed to participate. But there was no organized effort to integrate NASCAR, and Wendell Scott had no backing at all in his attempts to cross the color line. He just kept showing up until someone let him race. Because that is not to belittle that achievement. It was a brave thing to continue showing up. Uh, But I really don't think it had crossed the minds or even entered the minds in the vaguest way of anybody in the NASCAR organization of like, you know what we should do is integrate in 1953. Like that, I don't think that was a conversation that would have even been a spark of thinking about happening. So once they had heard about what happened in Richmond with... Uh, Wendell Scott being allowed to drive in the race. NASCAR officials at the organization's headquarters in Daytona Beach, Florida, were not all that pleased about it. So while a lot of other firsts by Black athletes tended to become major news events, they really tried to keep Scott's entry into the world of NASCAR racing quiet. NASCAR wasn't getting that much coverage in the mainstream media at this point in its history. But when Scott's name was mentioned in the press, it was sometimes listed as something like W.D. Scott to keep anybody from putting together that he was the Black driver who had made a name for himself in the Dixie circuit. Scott's first recorded NASCAR race is from the following season, when he raced at Daytona on February 19, 1954. On April 17th of that year, Scott had his first encounter with William France Sr., known as Big Bill, the founder of NASCAR. Scott had gone to Raleigh to race the night before, but the race had been rained out. And it was pretty common for NASCAR to compensate drivers for the cost of getting to the race when it was rained out. And this was particularly important to uh, Wendell Scott. He had no kind of financial backing or sponsorship, and he didn't really have much money on his own. All the other drivers who had showed up in Raleigh that night were given $15 to cover the cost of their gas, but Enoch Staley, who was the promoter, refused to compensate Scott. So when Scott met France in Lynchburg on the 17th, he told him about what had happened. France assured him that from now on, he was part of NASCAR, and he was going to be treated just like any other driver. And then France gave Scott $30 from his pocket. Later on in the 1954 season, Scott finished a race ahead of another driver named Ward McDonald. McDonald intentionally rear-ended Scott's car repeatedly afterward, and the only thing that kept him from physically attacking Scott after the race was over was that Scott's friend, fellow driver Earl Brooks, physically intervened. The day after this incident, France sent a letter to every NASCAR driver saying that anyone who intentionally wrecked Scott's car would be suspended. But unfortunately, it didn't last long. Scott had ongoing problems with other drivers intentionally wrecking him during races or forcing him into a wall. 
This included an incident with driver Shorty York, who rear-ended Scott two different times at Bowman Gray Stadium in Winston-Salem, causing him to roll over both times. Neither Build France nor NASCAR as an organization did anything to address it. Apart from being a racist show of potentially life-threatening poor sportsmanship, this kind of treatment had a direct effect on Scott's finances and his ability to keep entering races. If somebody intentionally hit him or caused him to spin out, he'd lose several places in the pack as he got back on track. And a lot of times there was just no way to make up the lost time, which meant that his prize money at the end of the race was smaller. That meant he had less money to pay for his gas, to repair and maintain the car, and to pay his bills back home. Scott was also an owner-driver, which, as the term suggests, means that he owned the cars he was driving and racing in. In the world of NASCAR, these are almost two different jobs, and it's very rare for a person to simultaneously own the car and drive it today. This was a lot more common in the 1950s, but now that he was in NASCAR-sanctioned races, Scott was also increasingly up against drivers who were essentially sponsored by auto manufacturers. Sponsorship within NASCAR has its own history, and this wasn't always official, but factory-sponsored teams were basically getting their cars from automakers for free or for a reduced price, while Scott was having to buy all of his cars himself. Also, as an owner-driver, he was responsible for literally everything. He had no mechanic other than himself. He had no pit crew other than his sons who crewed for him when their school schedule allowed, or sometimes his friends. A lot of times he couldn't afford to pay the entry fee for them, so he would smuggle them into the track in the trunk of his race car. The trunks of the tow cars were usually searched on the way in, but a lot of times the race car's trunk wasn't, and so he'd have his helpers back there hiding out under tires. Sometimes nobody was available to help him out, so he would be his own pit crew, falling behind in the standings as he did his own repairs and changed his own tires. He just had no staff at all of any kind other than friends and family who helped him out. That's one of those things that is such a startling image if you watch any racing today when people just pull into the pit and um, they get swarmed by their staff. (laughs) And, like, the idea that you would pull in, get out of your car, jack it up, do all the work yourself, and then get back in is astonishing. Well, and it's, like, it it doesn't sound like that too big of a job to say that you both own the car and drive it. But, like, driving in the race is a physically grueling experience. A lot of times you're going hundreds of miles in a night. You're also driving to the track, which a lot of times was hours away from where he lived, where he had been the night before. And then where an owner of the car would usually be the person who was responsible for arranging the maintenance and for doing the publicity and for basically managing the whole enterprise. Like, he was doing that also. And it was a ton of work. It was exhausting. It sounds exhausting. I'm exhausted just thinking about it. And on top of all of that, Scott was at a perpetual disadvantage because of the cars he was driving. The cars that the factory-sponsored teams were driving kept getting better and better, and even the drivers who weren't sponsored by an automaker often had some kind of sponsorship or financial backing or just money of their own. They were still driving relatively new vehicles that were well-equipped to perform in whichever class of race they were made for. But Scott had none of this. Most of his cars were ones he bought from other drivers and teams after the end of the season when they were being replaced with newer models. 
Regardless, though, Wendell Scott actually did really well in his first NASCAR season. He wound up in 19th place in his class nationally among almost 2,000 drivers. And we're going to talk about Scott's rookie season in racing in NASCAR's top tier after a sponsor break. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. (laughs) Yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, Our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History Class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors, and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So in his first few years of NASCAR races, Wendell Scott was driving unmodified cars, generally building up his record and getting more and more coverage in the media as the media started to pay more attention to NASCAR. He was driving in the, a lower class of races that was not quite as prestigious and didn't have quite as much competition. In 1959, he won 22 races in his class, including the Virginia State Championship, And this win gave him a guaranteed spot plus paid expenses at the newly opened Daytona International Speedway. He built a 1953 Ford to take to this 250-mile race, which took place on February 13, 1960. At that race, he wound up in a huge pileup. He dodged several wrecked cars before swerving so hard that he rolled over several times. The race was stopped, but at that point, 36 of the 73 competing cars had been wrecked. While officials cleared the track of wreckage, Scott and his sons repaired his car so that he could keep going once the race started again. This included popping out the rear window of the car to replace the shattered front windshield. 
Scott's engine blew before this race was over, but the fact that he had gotten his car going again and had tried to finish the race after the red flag was lifted without a pit crew to help him other than his kids really started to earn the respect of some of the other drivers. This is where in the movie about his life, I start crying because I'm like, go, man, go. Uh, (laughs) At this point, he thought he was ready to start trying for the Grand Nationals. The Grand Nationals have had several different names over the years, and today they're known as the Monster Energy NASCAR Cup Series. And for many years, they were the Winston Cup. Of all the various series in NASCAR, this is the top tier. Scott got a new car to try to improve his chances in this more elite field of competition. The car was a Chevrolet that he bought from Buck Baker, who had previously won two Grand National Championships. Scott paid for this car with moonshine money, and he drove it in his first race on March 4th, 1961. This was another big milestone for NASCAR. For the first time, a Black man was driving in the organization's top tier of races. But the organization, the announcers, and the promoters said nothing about it. In several interviews given before this March 4th race, the race's promoter didn't even mention Scott by name. On race day, the announcer introduced him as W.D. Scott. Apart from this lack of recognition, Scott faced increasing harassment when he moved into the Grand, the Grand National Series. Some of it was from spectators and fans, everything from racist slurs to actual death threats. But some of it was from the racing officials and other drivers. There were still drivers who intentionally ran into him or caused him to wreck on the track. NASCAR inspectors would fail his car for mechanical reasons that didn't exist or for reasons that had nothing to do with the car's safety or ability to to drive, like having chips in the paint. In April, the car that Scott had bought from Buck Baker in March literally tore itself in half during a race. It turned out that cracks in the frame had been repaired with body filler, something that Baker had claimed someone on his team did without his knowledge. Scott responded to this the way he responded to a lot of harassment and other suspicious behavior that he encountered in the world of racing. He said nothing about it, he kept his head down, and he just didn't make it an issue. His place in the world of NASCAR seemed so precarious that he was wary of making waves or possibly provoking a racist backlash. He missed his next two races while repairing the car. On May 21st of 1961, Scott was turned away when he tried to enter a race at Charlotte Motor Speedway. He was once again given no reason why he couldn't race. This continued to happen at other tracks as well, sometimes after Scott had spent a lot of time and money getting there. He started trying to stick to races that were closer to home or in more northern areas with the hope of not wasting his money traveling to an event that he wouldn't be allowed to participate in, which would then give him no way to recoup what he had spent getting there. Being turned away from races for no valid reason happened over and over during Scott's career. His application to drive in the Darlington Southern 500 that year was denied as well. There was language on the entry form that said participants could be turned away for any reason, but it was clear to everyone what that reason was. Darlington was in an area that was home to substantial Ku Klux Klan activity. Racial resentment was flourishing in the face of the ongoing civil rights movement. And Strom Thurmond, the man who said, quote, all the laws of Washington and all the bayonets of the army cannot force the Negro into our homes, into our schools, our churches, and our places of recreation and amusement, was an honorary judge at that race. 
For years, Scott would continue to be turned away every time he tried to earn his Darlington stripes. In spite of being turned away so many times, Scott was able to drive in 23 races in his rookie season at this level of NASCAR. Five of those times ended in top 10 finishes. If he'd had that record today, he might have been named Rookie of the Year, which is an honor that's now awarded based on which rookie has earned the most points in NASCAR's top class. But at the time, officials had a say in who was named as Rookie of the Year, and even though the standings and the points were a factor, it was ultimately really up to Bill France Sr. And Scott's rookie season in the Grand National Series, that honor went to Woodrow Wilson of Alabama, who had driven in only five races and had one top 10 finish. Over the course of that season, Scott started to face a little less hostility from the other drivers, as they saw how good he was, both behind the wheel and under the hood. They also realized that he was doing all of this with his own money and no resources and no financial backing apart from his winnings at the races. They saw him get up and race well after sleeping on the ground and eating a bag lunch because there were no hotels in the area that would let him rent a room and no restaurants that would serve him. In 1963, Scott bought another new car, this time one of Ned Jarrett's from the season before. This was a much better car than what he had been driving, but he was still at a huge disadvantage when compared to the cars that the top racers had. 1963 was also a tumultuous year in the United States. That's the year George Wallace was elected governor of Alabama and held his infamous stand at the schoolhouse door. It's when police used attack dogs and fire hoses on civil rights marchers, some of whom were students. The 16th Street Baptist Church bombing took place in 1963 as well. And Scott was driving in races in many of these same places where these events happened or were happening. He made it a practice to always travel with someone, since it wasn't safe for a Black man to travel through a lot of this territory alone. On June 9, 1963, Scott's application to race in Birmingham was denied because promoters, quote, didn't want to cause trouble. This rejection led to one of the more terrifying events in Scott's career. He raced even though his entry had been denied, starting 15th and finishing 7th. And after the race was over, officials immediately ran to his car, telling him to leave immediately. He later learned that a group of spectators were allegedly on their way to set his car on fire. I say allegedly because there's just a lot of unanswered questions about this. Like, nobody really knows how officials heard this, whether they contacted the police, like, who the people were that were supposedly planning this. But regardless, he did leave immediately. But he did not stop racing. And in 1963, he also earned his only win at the Grand National level. And we will talk about that after another sponsor break. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Couric. I've got a ton of questions about this crazy time we're living in, and I know you probably do, too. On the new season of my podcast, Next Question with me, Katie Couric, I sit down with people at the center of the issues shaping the world around us, like the impact meat has on our health and on the environment, why the maternal mortality rate in the United States is so high, and how the 2020 presidential candidates plan to improve the lives of everyday Americans. I hope you'll join me for these fascinating conversations on the second season of Next Question. Subscribe and listen every Thursday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows.
On December 1st, 1963, Wendell Scott earned his only grand national win of his career. This race was at Speedway Park near Jacksonville, Florida, and he was hopeful that he would do well on this track because the track itself seemed like one that might give him an advantage over the other drivers in their newer, faster cars. The track in Jacksonville was dirt, which was a lot more common in the 60s than it is now. And on top of that, it wasn't particularly well-maintained dirt. It tended to start out full of potholes and gullies and only get worse as the race went on. So Scott thought that all those earlier years hauling moonshine on country roads and racing on less-than-stellar dirt tracks at fairgrounds and stuff like that might give him an edge. And he hoped that if he placed well, he might get a sponsorship from Ford Motor Company, which would finally give him access to the same caliber of cars that his competition had. His qualifying round in Jacksonville didn't go very well. Even though he was really used to driving fast on rough terrain, the car was just too tightly sprung. It would hit the ruts and potholes and then careen kind of uncontrollably. It was just way too bouncy to handle at high speeds. He finished 15th out of 22, which meant that his starting position would be almost at the back of the pack. There was no way he could rebuild his car before the race itself, but nevertheless... He got under it, and he started looking around to see if he could think of a solution that would make it handle better. And what he finally decided to do was to take one of the two shock absorbers off of each wheel so that he'd still have some cushioning, but not be so tightly sprung that he'd just ricochet off of every obstacle. This worked incredibly well. When the race started, his car was handling better than anyone else on the field. And then on top of that, the other cars were bouncing around so much much that a lot of the drivers dropped out of the race because of damage in their wheels, axles, and suspension. With more than 20 laps to go, Scott was in second place behind Richard Petty. And he was reluctant to try to pass him. Although he and Petty became friends, Petty had put him into the wall at a race earlier in the same year. But Petty's car was damaged by the road condition like so many other drivers. He slowed down due to a broken steering arm, and Scott easily got past him. But the next time that Scott could see the scoreboard, which had been showing him in second place, his name wasn't on it anymore. The scoreboard was blank. Scott knew how many laps there were to go. He knew he was ahead of everyone else. And when he got to what should have been the finish, the checkered flag did not drop. He kept driving, confused, for two more laps. But when the checkered flag did drop, it wasn't for him. It was for Buck Baker. Scott was marked as coming in third. There continues to be disagreement about exactly what happened. Scott was completely confident that he had won the race, as were some of the scorekeepers. Scorekeeping happened in kind of a weird way where somebody manually counted all of your laps. And a lot of times the person manually counting all of your laps was like a friend or family member. Like, Buck Baker's wife was keeping score for him, and a lot of times, uh, Wendell Scott's wife would keep score for him. So there's this whole manual process. A lot of the scorekeepers were like, no, um, Wendell Scott definitely won this. A lot of the drivers who had started the race but then had to drop out because of mechanical problems were watching the race and also all knew that Wendell Scott had won. The theories about why his name had disappeared from the scoreboard and why he wasn't uh, recognized as the winner, included that officials didn't want a black man to win the race or that officials didn't want a black man to kiss the white beauty queen who was always there and was traditionally kissed by the winner when the trophy was presented. 
Meanwhile, NASCAR's position has been that it was just an honest mistake, although that doesn't really explain how the scoreboard that had showed him in second place for so long suddenly displayed nothing. Eventually, the mistake was corrected, and Scott was given the $1,000 prize money he was owed for the win. But by that point, the race was long over. The media and the spectators were all gone. The real trophy was gone, too, and it has never been clear what exactly happened to it. At the next official race in Savannah, Scott was presented with a trophy of a sort that you might give to a youth sports team for participating. It wasn't personalized, and it said nothing about his win. It was presented at a small ceremony, at which the focus was on how so many other drivers had dropped out of the race, making it seem like that was the only reason that Scott won. That same day in Savannah, somebody cut one of Wendell Scott's tires in a way that was almost certain to cause a wreck, but he spotted the damage totally by coincidence while doing some brake work before the race started. In spite of this massive disappointment, Scott kept racing. In Charlotte in 1964, he started in the 40th position at the World 600 and ended in ninth, which was a record-breaking finish for someone so far back in the pack. That same year, the Civil Rights Act of 1964 made it illegal for race officials in Darlington to keep denying him entry because of his race. NASCAR officials have maintained that Scott was always treated fairly and that they had no knowledge of his being barred from Darlington. Also in 1964, Ned Jarrett suggested to Lee Iacocca, who was then vice president of Ford Motor Company, that Ford give Wendell Scott a car. And they did, kind of. It was an older model that had been sitting out in a field and had had parts stolen off of it, which Scott bought for a dollar and then put a lot of work into fixing up himself. This, as was so often the case, was a faster car than he had been driving, but this mostly seemed like a way for Ford to give him a car without angering racist fans or seeming to to take a side in the civil rights issue at Darlington. By 1965, Scott was ranked 11th in the nation, and that year he won $20,000 in prize money and was getting almost as much applause as the top drivers when he was introduced. But the late 1960s were otherwise extremely difficult for him. Technology had progressed to the point that it was almost impossible for an owner-driver to take on a factory-sponsored team, and Scott's own cars were plagued with serious mechanical problems. He also had multiple other incidents where, like, by his count and his scorekeeper's count, he should have been in the top three, but instead he was recorded as being farther down. Skipping ahead just a bit, in 1972, at the age of 50, he was supposed to be part of a big publicity stunt where he would be given a high-performance car to race, one that was actually on par with what the factory-sponsored drivers had. This car was to be provided by Junior Johnson, and there was a history of other drivers having their first really big break in a Junior Johnson car. But for some reason, he didn't get a Junior Johnson car. He got a car that had been rented from another team with a lower budget, and it broke down before the end of the highly hyped race. Junior Johnson has said that it was just a matter of not being able to get Scott the kind of car they wanted in time, that it was just a regrettable lack of resources. But at the same time, there had been a lot of talk about whether he could really handle a high-performance car. And the person who was responsible for actually sourcing the vehicle 
was someone who had intentionally wrecked him repeatedly and had used racist language around him during their time racing on the same tracks. On May 6, 1973, Scott started in the Winston 500 at Talladega Super Speedway. He was trying to take his one last big shot to try to get a big win. He had sunk all of his money into a race car that he thought could perform on par with the other drivers, including mortgaging his house and borrowing money from everyone he knew. This was a new Mercury built by Holman Moody, which was a shop that had a stellar reputation, which he'd found for sale without an engine. George Wallace was the race's grand marshal, and several of Scott's family were there at the race, including his sons who were working in the pit crew and a daughter who had skipped her college graduation to come. The 1973 race saw one of the most famous accidents at Talladega Super Speedway. Ahead of the race, at least one NASCAR executive cautioned that they were fielding way too many cars, and he foresaw a massive pileup in the making. On the ninth lap, one of the drivers blew an engine, which spread oil along the track and sparked a pileup that wrecked 21 cars, putting 19 of them out of the race. Scott was caught up in all this, but at first he thought he was okay. Another car hit him and pushed him into the infield, where it seemed like he was out of the way of the ongoing crash without all that much damage to his car. But then another driver crashed into him hard. It damaged the car beyond repair, and it injured him very badly. He broke multiple ribs, his pelvis, both knees, and a leg. He also got a gash in his arm that required 60 stitches. His sons, who were in the pit, did not see what had happened. When another driver drove in, they asked where their father was, and that driver told them that he was dead. Scott was immediately taken to the hospital, and he was hospitalized for more than a month. And although he did drive in a few more races after he was off of crutches, this effectively ended his racing career. He had had 147 top 10 finishes out of his 495 starts in the Grand National Series. He went back to try to earn a living as a mechanic, and he started spending more time working with New Hope Baptist Church. Although fans raised money to help him cover his hospital bills, it took him nine years to pay off the car. Bill France Sr. had retired from NASCAR at this point and had served with George Wallace's presidential campaign in Florida. He offered compensation to all the wrecked drivers at Talladega that day, trying to offset the cost of their damaged or destroyed cars. When he came around to talk to the drivers, Scott was already at the hospital. He never had that conversation. The France family did contribute $1,500 to his medical bills, according to family records. And Richard Petty, who they had actually become quite close friends, contributed $500. That $1,500 would not have really even made a dent in how much the car cost. Like, he had gone at least $22,000 in debt paying for it. In 1977, Wendell Scott was inducted into the Black Athletes Hall of Fame. And that same year, he consulted on the movie Greased Lightning, which starred Richard Pryor and Pam Greer. It was a fictionalized biography drama based on Scott's racing career. This is another moment where, as I was doing this, I, mean, I said at the top of part one <laughs> that when I was watching Timeless, I had to stop right there, stop the presses. We have to do a <laughs> podcast episode. Um, all the various articles that I was reading all just sort of said, blah, 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 starring Richard Pryor, 1977. And then I got to the one that said Richard Pryor and Pam Greer, and I was like, stop, stop right there. I need to go find this movie. <laughs> and uh, to be candid, I have not watched the movie because I needed to finish writing this podcast. <laughs> uh, but as soon as I heard that it was uh, 
that it was both Richard Pryor and Pam Greer. I was like, I got to check this thing out. Wendell Scott died of spinal cancer on December 23rd of 1990. Other drivers and racing personalities auctioned off memorabilia to help pay for his treatment and care. He was inducted into a number of other halls of fame after his death, including the National Sports Hall of Fame, the International Motorsports Hall of Fame, and the National Motorsports Press Association Hall of Fame. In 2015, he became the first black man to be inducted into the NASCAR Hall of Fame. Although NASCAR has launched diversity initiatives in more recent years, it would be decades before the organization had another full-time black driver. In January of 2018, Daryl Wallace Jr., known as Bubba, became NASCAR's first full-time black driver in its top series since Wendell Scott. If you want to learn more about Wendell Scott, I highly recommend the book Hard Driving the Wendell Scott Story by Brian Donovan. It is extremely good. Just a heads up, there is a lot of racist language in it because of what it's talking about and when. Uh, It is pretty widely available. I was able to find it in the public library network here in Massachusetts. Um, Also, one of the points that Brian Donovan makes is that For so much of Wendell Scott's racing career, it was happening during the civil rights movement in places that the civil rights movement was really active. And there was a lot of white backlash against the civil rights movement. Like, uh, people today lionize Martin Luther King Jr., but in a lot of places that the civil rights movement was was, uh, demonstrating and protesting, like, people hated him, and they hated the civil rights movement. They hated everything that it stood for. And the fact that Wendell Scott was a black man that uh, the white audience of NASCAR started rooting for was a really big deal. Uh, And his his contention is that Wendell Scott did more to help race race relations in these, like, very conservative parts of the South than, like, the, the more active work that was about trying to change the system. It was like, for a lot of people, this was the first time they saw a black man who they respected and who they wanted to do well and who in a lot of cases they would literally cheer cheer for when he bested white drivers. Um, So it is an amazing story. And I'm really glad he was on an episode of Timeless. Otherwise, I don't think I would have known. I don't think this is somebody that that listeners have uh, have written to us to ask for. I'm going to be honest that I did not search the whole list to see, but like the first time I ever remember seeing his name was on Timeless. And everybody that I've talked to about this episode while working on it has been like, I'm sorry, what? There was a black NASCAR driver during the Jim Crow era. How, right? how was this possible? <laughs> I also have some listener mail. Hooray! This is from Robin. Uh, it is about our Ignat Semmelweis episode. And it's one of a couple of letters that we got about the thing that we said at the end. Um, about hospital-acquired infections still being a major problem and still being connected uh, to hand-washing. We know there are a lot of other reasons for hospital-acquired infections. And Robin's letter says, I've been listening to your podcast for about four years, and I'm always recommending it to my colleagues. I am a visiting hospice nurse, so I have lots of time to listen to your podcast while driving to patients' houses or to visit them in the hospital. I loved the episode about Ignat Semmelweis, and it resonated with me when you mentioned that it drove him crazy that people wouldn't wash their hands because it was literally killing women when they didn't. Hospital workers are struggling with a similar issue now that makes us all pull our hair out because our patients are literally dying. 
To stop the spread of hospital-acquired infections, we sometimes place patients with known infections on contact precautions, as these type of infections will spread like wildfire among our immunocompromised patients, those on chemotherapy, the very old and the very young. There is a sign outside their room and instructions on what to wear when you go in. Most of the times, this includes a big yellow apron called a gown, gloves, and sometimes a mask. All of these items should be taken off and disposed of as soon as you leave the room, and there's a garbage can at the door. Nothing should be taken out of the room until the patient is discharged, as this is considered contaminated. This is not to protect that specific patient, as they already have the infection, and many times it is not to protect the healthcare workers because their immune systems would fight off the infection. This is to prevent the spread of infection to other patients. Many times, well-meaning family members will not understand the precautions and enter the room without a gown because they don't feel like wearing one. Other times, we see family members going in and out of the rooms wearing the gown and inadvertently touching things in the hallway. One time on our floor, a family member was consistently bringing a water pitcher out of the patient's contact precautions room to refill it at the common water dispenser and repeatedly dismissed to the healthcare team's instructions not to do that. She stated she was just helping the nurses out. The infection this patient had, a type of severe diarrhea, spread throughout the unit and the water dispenser was cultured and found to be contaminated. While I know this seems like such a hassle to wear a gown and gloves, if there is a sign on the patient's door that says to do this, we implore everyone to do it. People are literally dying because well-meaning visitors don't follow the rules. I just wanted to throw that out there as a big thing everyone can do in hospitals to prevent infection. Again, thank you for four years of edutainment serving as the Gateway Podcast to many other fantastic shows. Robin, thank you so much, Robin. Number one, for doing work that I know, I know people who work in hospice care and how that can be a, a challenging and simultaneously rewarding role. And it's such important work for people who really need that kind of help and support. Uh, and also for providing us with this little PSA about how listeners can help prevent the spread of infection if they go to visit loved ones in the hospital. If you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We are also all over social media at the name Missed in History. So you will find us on Facebook and Pinterest and Instagram and Twitter, Missed in History. You can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com. We have recently announced some live shows, and there is a link in the menu to find information about those live shows. You will also find a... Uh, a list of all the episodes we've ever done, which is also a searchable archive, and um, show notes for all the episodes Holly and I have ever done. So you can do all that at MissedInHistory.com, and you can find and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever else you get podcasts. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. The only way is through. A new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through. Available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. 
we are going to Italy. After the success of last year's trip to Paris, we are planning another similar trip, still with defined destinations, this time to Rome and Florence. Yeah, we are going to spend a week exploring some amazing things. We're going to have city tours of both Rome and Florence. We're going to see the Roman Colosseum, the Vatican Museum, and the Sistine Chapel, St. Peter's Basilica, Vatican City. This is just a tiny fraction of all the stuff we're going to get to do. Yeah, it's May 14th to 21st, 2020. And to get more information, go to defineddestinations.com and scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with Stuff You Missed in History class. 